podcast this week, we go bro to bro to bro with the star of Bros, Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. And we dare to go down into the cellar with Barbarian star Georgina Campbell. All that and more on the movie podcast that if it were to pick a fight with a random celebrity in our autobiography, is pretty sure it wouldn't pick the guy who single-handedly destroyed the Matrix, took on the Russian Mafia, went toe-to-toe with Satan himself, out-surfed Patrick Swayze, played death at Twister, knows where the bastard sleeps, and is really, really good at pop quizzes hotshot. Just a tip for the future. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week we are recording it remotely. We are not in the grey, depressing, well actually the the warm, welcoming surroundings of the Jazz FM studio. Instead we are recording this remotely for reasons. Shut up, don't ask. Uh, and I am joined by my two colleagues of such a lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here on a brand new computer. Hello, I'm so excited that I have a laptop that works and doesn't blue screen every 15 minutes. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? It is, it is. I'm very excited. Hey, have you upgraded your opinions or are we still clinging to the same old stuff? No, it's the same old nonsense as ever. Um, I'm afraid I still don't like Joker. The new PC hasn't changed everything. Oh, that guy, that guy. James Gunn has not been appointed co-CEO of the (laughs) PC universe. Um, Not yet anyway. But listen... Your opinions are, like mine, hackneyed and old. Mm, Luckily, we have a breath of fresh air this week, making her second appearance in the podcast, is Ella Kemp. Hello. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. What opinions do you have, Ella? Um, Where do you stand on Joker? I don't want to think about it, and I (laughs) would be happy for people if he stopped making me unhappy. So... Generally not happy opinions. Welcome, friend. <laughs> yes, speak, friend, and enter. Uh, I think I think this is a, just a generally sound opinion to have about the Joker, anyway, because that guy is just—he's not a sound guy, you know. So he's meant to be bad. I'll leave him alone if he leaves me alone. I just feel like he's got many things to be cracking on with, and so do I. Like we don't—we just don't need to be in each other's lives. And I—I I never chose for the Joker to be in my life, so. I just wish just it there. could stay that way. I know. Just 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 joking around. Just joking around. Life should be serious sometimes, you know? Why so serious? Why so serious, Ella? Why so serious? You want to know how I got these scars? Uh, no, I don't. I didn't ask. I got this scar. Sorry. I got this scar. Right, uh-huh. You probably can't see it on the camera. But I got this scar from a, a classmate at school who stabbed me in the arm with a pencil. Wow. Just randomly. Hi. No reason. Do you remember what colour his hair is? It was green, actually, <laughs> now you think about it. Uh, okay. But yeah, he did have a white face and he was cackling quite a lot, which brings me neatly on to, uh, we might be doing a couple of listener questions this week. We've decided to jettison the Halloween questions until next week, post-Halloween. Makes total sense makes to me. Makes no sense. Mm. It makes perfect sense to me. Okay. It's it's chaotic, and that is what Halloween is about, right? It's about chaos and sweets. Are you back to the Joker again? You are back to the Joker again, and we will be back to the Joker with this question, uh, which I am going to do because I think it's quite fun. Um, it's from the Meller Geek, who slid into my DMs and said, politics these days, well, he singled out a group of people, but I'm trying to stay relatively neutral on the podcast and not throw... Various politicians under 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 a bus. Mm. So he said, politics these days is like a big old circus, isn't it? Ha ha ha. So can you pick 
a circus. Can you put together a circus featuring a group of clowns from cinema history? And Ella, you've mentioned him already. The number one clown, the numero uno clowno. It's the Joker, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, I'd I'd say he could lead the troupe. Um, I'd I'd like to kind of broaden the definition of clown in the way that in real life, maybe this is just me just being really horrible. But you know, when someone who is not in a face of makeup with green hair is being a little bit silly, you might call them a clown. So mm-hmm. I want to broaden it out in that sense um, to kind of not stay focused on the the, the physical traits of a clown, mm-hmm. but it's more. It's more an aura. It's more kind of spiritual sense of being, I would say. And I feel like the Joker has both the physical attributes and the spiritual ones. So I'd say obviously he can lead the troupe, but the the people that he's with don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to look like clowns. It's more, you know, what what they're doing and, and... who they are? Uh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say no to that one. I'm gonna say no to that one because that I think that that does open the floodgates a little bit. And uh, let's stick here with people who are actually dressed as clowns okay. or are employed as clowns in so some capacity. Joker. That's my the Joker. <laughs> well, the thing is, you, you could okay. probably have. You could probably just populate this with jokers, couldn't you, Helen? I mean, we've got we've got loads. We've got we've got the Jack Nicholson Joker. Mm-hmm. If you want to go back and include TV, we've got the Cesar Romero Joker. You've got obviously the Jared Leto Joker, the best of them all. You've got the Heath Ledger Joker, and you've got <laughs> your beloved Joaquin Phoenix. I would say Harley Quinn. Uh, she's she's a Harley Quinn. She's a Harley she's, Quinn. Is, she's is, a little competent yeah. for the group we're talking about. I feel like yeah. she'd yeah, get yeah, yeah. shit done. Yeah, in a way that well, actually, let's be fair. Most of the jokers are fairly competent. Mm, yeah, you see, that's why they wouldn't be top of my list, if I'm honest. Mm. But we want people who would do a better job than the people who are doing the job that is not as good as... I'm trying not to name anyone. The Tories. It's the remain, Tories, though, isn't it? Remaining neutral. Sure. Rem- neutral. I feel like Harley Quinn would do... She she would be useful in a hypothet- hypothetical imaginary situation if the leader of the clowns um, had to step down from their position after 45 days and needed someone to be able to lead the clowns, mm-hmm. um, I think you would want someone like Harley Quinn who could, I'd imagine she could do the job for at least like 50, 55 days or something. So I, I feel like you'd want and need that kind of energy. Yeah, I think I think she would uh, be able to handle herself. Uh, that is for sure. She, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, the, the, the Joker... The Heath Ledger Joker, for example, shows that he doesn't care about money. So he gets all that money in The Dark Knight and then he immediately sets fire to it. So mm-hmm. do we want someone like that in charge of the economy is well, what I'm want, asking. no, but have. Probably, yes. You know, so uh, yeah, that, that, that he, he certainly would seem to have a place in hypothetically this cabinet, if you will, of clowns that we're putting together. Um, certainly that, that above all would seem to qualify him um, for it. Although, of course... Note that he didn't just take that money and give it to his mates. He actually took it from his mates. And that does seem to be out of step with popular uh, culture right now. Um, I would like to suggest a couple more names. Um, Nightmare Alley. Are we open to freaks as well as clowns? I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's I, I, definitely a circus attraction. It, it is. It is. But then where do, where do you draw the line? Well, I feel like it's very much in the same kind of, you know, genre. I feel like the line has been changed quite a lot in this hypothetical imaginary scenario that the listener is bringing in. So I feel like based on that, we can also, you know, the line is um, flexible. It's unprecedented, Mm. you could say. 
I feel like you're trying to change the line, but I'm I'm being very firm with the line. Okay, okay fine. May, let me be quite clear. Let me oh, be gosh. very clear. Uh, the line is clowns. How do you define a clown? Literally a clown. Someone who's either dressed as a clown or employed as a clown. In that case, Pennywise. There we go. There and we pound go. foolish, surely Pennywise is the person you want in charge of your economy. Want? No. Why? Have? Yes. Why, why would you want Pennywise in charge? I'm sorry, I, I just need to get one thing clear. Why, um, if we currently have clowns, why do we want more clowns? That's a, that's a good question, and yet that's what seems to be happening over and over again. Where do you stand on clowns apart from their necks, which is where you should stand on a clown so that they can't clown at you? Because we should we should say, for the avoidance of any doubt, that clowns are fucking terrifying mm. and deeply unfunny uh, and should be banned immediately. I don't want clowns to clown at me. I want them to leave me alone. I want exactly. a minister who will introduce a purge of clowns. And I, I, I don't mean, oh, Chris, a comedic purge. No, I mean an actual purge of mm. clowns. Like in the movie, The Purge. It should be legal one day every year to kill a clown. I'm just, I'm just saying. I mean, they have to be dressed as clowns. Okay, so we have to be, we have to be very clear. Mm. And they should only be killed. And let me be quite clear. And let me be quite clear about this once again. They should only be killed in amusing ways, all right? I'm right, not talking yes. about vicious murder. I'm not talking mm. about that at all, all right? I'm not talking about, you know, the guy who lives next door to me is a bit annoying, so you put a bit of face paint on him, uh, say he's a clown, and then stab him, and therefore you can get off scot-free. Helen, that's that's a legal thing, right? You can that just is, do that. That is not, Chris, absolutely that is, not. No. Well, under the terms of this clown purge, oh, it's okay. absolutely legal. What I'm saying is that if you want to kill a clown on Clown Purge Day, you have to do something amusing. You have to run them over with a clown car or you have to squirt acid in their face from a from one of your little little flowers. Get them get them to come in close and mm. then go hee 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 and squirt. Um, you know, death by squirting, that's always fun. And then or drop a piano on them. Something amusing that'll make the kiddies laugh. What day of the year is Clown Purge Day? Like what what holiday is it near? It's March twenty seventh. Awesome. What has March twenty seventh ever done to you? Just just makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. I feel bad for him from Modern Family, if I'm honest. Who's he's, him he's from Modern very, Family? Uh, him from Modern Family. You know, the, 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 the guy. Not Phil. The one who's a clown, part-time. I stopped watching Modern Family about three seasons in. I mean, it was literally in season one. But anyway, one of the Modern Family, the, the one of the gay couple with the, with the little girl. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. he's a lovely clown. He's to, a lovely to clown. To a point that anyone can be a lovely clown. I personally am with, you know, Sam Winchester and Supernatural that, you know, he, he fights monsters for a living. Clowns is the thing he's afraid of. Clowns um, is bad. Clowns, clowns, clowns is are bad. Not, not right. Apologies to all our clown listeners. So sorry. And I really do think that in any way comparing them to what I think is happening, which might or might not be the current UK cabinet, um, is does do a disservice even to clowns. So, does it, Helen? Yes, does it? yes it, does. I, I absolutely it does. does. Yeah. Shall we examine the behaviour of Pennywise, who skulks Look, in sewers and rips the arms off little children? Pennywise, Pennywise is an artisanal killer. Pennywise once every 27 years kills a handful of people, right? The damage well, done hypothetically by a, a cabinet full of clowns would be much, much, much greater for us all. Okay, this has gone in a disconcerting direction. So shall we name some more clowns and move on? Okay, quick change. To I don't have the talk time. about quick change. There you go. Where you have bank robbers dressed as crack clowns. Yes, you do. Uh, which, of course, we saw in The Dark Knight. We uh, also saw yes. it there, yes. But we've Bill, already discussed Bill Murray. Joker. 
Bill Murray. There are indeed. clowns in Dumbo, right? They are, and they're mean to a small elephant. Yeah, yeah they're horrible. Oh, they're horrible. So I don't think you'd want them replacing anyone. No. I would ask you. I would let me be very clear in this. Oh God. Let me let me ask you. Has there ever been a good movie clown, like a really like a nice movie clown, someone who doesn't serial kill on the side or skulk in sewers and rip people's arms off or try to, you know, kill the Batman? Is there is there anyone like that? I mean, I'm thinking, for example, maybe Roger Moore in Octopussy, where he kind of dresses up as a clown. Yeah, he does. But I've been trying to so James that Bond out. as a clown. Yeah, that's fun. Uh, we fun like him. Is, fun is we a like such James a strong Bond. Word. Fun is a strong word. Um, I'm trying to think, like in in Big Fish, I feel like there were some nice clowns around the circus. Yeah. Although there were bad clowns around Danny DeVito. He's real thread running through mm. this, but um, in Batman Returns, he had clown henchmen. Remember? I just feel like Danny DeVito has good clown energy. Like I feel like you could see him um, kind of embodying either side of the clown. He could become a really scary and horrible and incompetent clown, mm. or he could be you know, the saving grace. He could be the good clown. I feel like I feel like there's um you know the way at the moment everyone's trying to do evil versions of perfectly wholesome and frankly perfect children's stories. Um I feel like something like that is coming for the Joker, but the other side, like doing just a really wholesome version, being like, he's not so bad. Um and I feel like that's when you'll see a fully fleshed out version of a good clown will get mm. its own film. Mm. You know, maybe the Joker. Maybe the Joker is, is due a. He's 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 been misrepresented. Maybe. So Joker, Joker two potentially might be the one that will. Maybe turn Lady Gaga is just like his therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. if she is, as rumored, Harley Quinn, then she literally could be. Um, yeah. I, it's it's interesting. I just uh, drawing back the curtain here for a moment. I just googled best clowns in movies mm -hmm. and the answers that came up are exclusively horror movies yes there yes. are no there are no nice clowns there's a gap in the market captain spaulding in those dreadful rob zombie films you have shakes the clown well shakes the clown isn't a horror film that's a bobcat goldthwaite comedy but you know you've got clown and clown you've got clown and spawn you've got mm. pennywise skulking around you've Killjoy, got the joker yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's Maybe maybe Ella's right. Maybe the time has come. Maybe we shouldn't kill clowns. Maybe we should reclaim clowns mm. and make them, you know, make clowns make, good again. Make clowns great again. Does anyone want to make a cap with that one? Um, I have found a website that has a list of clowns who aren't uh, evil, but quite a lot of them are evil. I mean, literally one of them is the Joker. So right. I don't quite get that. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's just a fundamental misreading of that movie. Uh, there's Krusty, I guess, in the Simpsons movie. I mean, Krusty is not entirely right. He's he, you know, he has very very lax product safety standards. He has caused a lot of suffering, um, and and yes, behaved not super brilliantly at all stages. I wouldn't trust him to lead the country. You're having a laugh? Absolutely not. He'd make it explode. Yeah. He would, Somehow. yeah. All right, so we we got to reclaim clowns. We got to make clowns great again. And the purge has been postponed uh, and for next year. So uh, if all goes well, there'll be a clown purge March twenty seventh, twenty twenty four. But twenty twenty three, clowns are safe for the time being. So you have time to reform your ways uh, over the next few months. All right, so that will be the only question we're going to take this week. 
we had another one, which was from Richard underscore White underscore one. Who are some directors who have, in your opinions, made both a five star film and a one star film? Richard White said it was inspired by the Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio. I wouldn't go that far on Pinocchio. I didn't think it was a one star film. Um, and I don't think Robert Zemeckis has made a one star film. A couple of two stars, yes, but also a whole bunch of fives. Uh, mm. We might tackle this question in depth on another podcast, but Helen, you had a good answer for it. I, I had an answer immediately, and that is uh, Edgar Wright, because he still gives us grief for Empire Magazine giving a fistful of fingers one star. But we definitely gave Scott Pilgrim five stars because I wrote it. So he has definitely, canonically, in Empire, had both one star and five star reviews. Yes, but we should also say that he uh, he has given us grief uh, with his tongue in his cheek about yes, uh, the yes. one star for Fistful of Fingers because <laughs> the best one in the he's world. Not, he's not an idiot, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was a movie made by a, uh, a a small boy, a plucky small boy, um, <laughs> for next to no money whatsoever. It's got some decent jokes, actually, Fistful of Fingers. Um, I don't think it's actually available, but if you do ever get a chance to see it, you can see, you can see early promise there. But as a movie in its own right, Yes, maybe maybe is a bit closer to the one star thing. Anyway, we'll maybe discuss that in greater depth another time. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, you can get in touch with me via one method only right now, really, which is Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can slide into my DMs, as indeed the Mel or Geek did this week, or you can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again, or you can just reply to any one of my tweets uh, once you've stopped laughing, of course. Uh, that's a question. I'm assuming anyone's still on Twitter as of next week. <laughs> we, we shall see. Uh, anyway, shall we move on to movie news? Let's. Let's do movie news. What has been happening in the world of movie news, folks? Well, I mean, do we start with the big news that you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is the news of DC Films having a new head honcho? And that head honcho is James Gunn who will be running the newly renamed DC Studios along with his producing partner, Peter Safran. So this is, this is big, big news. Obviously, he has the, the benefit of knowing you know, both DC and, and Marvel, which probably didn't hurt in this, uh, in this scenario. Yeah, this one makes sense to me. Mm. Um, you know, they've, they've got something right. The law of averages finally has struck over their Warner Brothers discovery, and they have made what seems to be, on the outside at least, the right choice. Um, you know, James Gunn knows his way around this stuff inside and out. He's got an intimate knowledge of the DC Comics world. Peter Safran, of course, has already been in this world. He yeah. has he has produced a number of movies for the DCEU. Um, you can hear him talk on our Shazam spoiler special, for example. And uh, he also produced Aquaman and The Suicide Squad and the upcoming Shazam Fury of the Gods and the upcoming Aquaman 2 as well. So, yeah, he's, he's clearly someone who's... You know, au fait with the material, and what this means is it's it's very interesting. So it means mm. that they might be finally getting their shit together. And it, this is not, of course, to say that they haven't had their shit together in previous years. But I would argue that the DC movies have been less essential than the than the MCU. And every now and again, they'll knock one out of the park. They'll they'll have a Wonder Woman, um, but then they'll have a Wonder Woman 1984, and and so they've been a little bit more inconsistent. And mm. perhaps the vision hasn't been quite as clear as it has been over at the MCU, where, of course, K-E-V-I-N has been has been working wonders for many years now. So, you know, they've got two people to do the job of Kevin Feige, but Gunn will probably have learned at the feet of Kevin Feige uh, on his three Guardians movies. He already has, you know, obviously um, 
DC experience with this Suicide Squad and and its spin-off Peacemaker. Um, so he kind of you know has has done a little bit of this kind of world building already. Um, I think it's worth saying that Todd Phillips' Joker films now are going to be outside this kind of purview. If he is doing something joined up, that that. It still stands apart, as does it appears, although it's not entirely clear, Matt Reeves's The Batman work. So those may still be off on their own little journey, even if, and we don't know this for sure, even if James Gunn kind of tries to tie the rest of the universe a bit more closely together. It also, of course, uh, Henry Cavill announced that he will return as Superman. So there is now, once again, talk of a sort of Man of Steel 2 with him back in Superman's duds, uh, which has people very, very excited, of course. Um, Black Adam has done really, really well at the box office already. So it seems like there will be more Black Adam at some point down the line. The Rock didn't seem terribly excited about a crossover with Shazam immediately. So it's probably going to be a Black Adam 2 rather than a Shazam versus Black Adam or anything like that. I can see why, because Black Adam is already a bigger character at the box office than Shazam. So he might see yeah, it as... But then, yeah, I, absolutely. And look, I mean, The Rock is a much bigger star than Zachary Levy. Um, so I get that. I guess that's part of it as well. You know, he doesn't want to play sort of second fiddle slash bad guy um, to, to someone else. Um, I get it. But it, it, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, I think. Ella, where do you stand on all this shenanigans, superhero movie shenanigans? Are you in the Scorsese camp and you would just throw them all into a big old pit and pour concrete over them all? or? Oh, goodness. I wouldn't go that far. I'm not... Um, I'm happy for James Gunn. I, I just think he has always seemed very decent and very respectful and very hardworking and very and no and just but just like very committed to the franchises and the characters and very protective of the worlds that he's in which from the from what I have read and seen from other filmmakers within those realms isn't always the case um in terms of caring about the characters in that way so from where I'm standing which is a little bit further back um it seems like a nice thing it seems good um and I think also uh also I I like both Wonder Woman films. I I it's thought this ben. was normal. Yeah, I thought this was normal. No, I do really like the second one, but obviously, yeah, I think anyone knows how uneven it's been. Um so if someone can make it less uneven in any way, if that's possible, that's exciting. Mm. That's nice, I think. I kind of like the idea of it being like a director as well. Yeah. Having a storyteller in charge of the storytelling yeah. makes sense. Yeah, and especially given that he, you know, the, the the stories about this and the deal that he has worked out explicitly allows him to keep filmmaking, to keep being a storyteller. Which I feel like that's rare. Weird, like weirdly, why, why, why do I think this is rare? That like a director who makes lots of films is suddenly going to have the power to help other directors make films. And like, why does that seem like such an anomaly to me? I think at the moment, especially with this um, area of Hollywood, and this has been something that has really come out again this week. One of the other stories to emerge about Warner Brothers this week was that, you know, it's not just Batgirl that they sort of wrote off. They've written off something like two and a half billion dollars worth yeah, of content. One of the things, for example, that they wrote off was uh, a completely written three years in development Green Lantern TV series. Um which they are sort of essentially restarting development on, um, having lost uh, Seth Graham Smith, who I think was was had written those scripts. That is an enormous amount of storytelling of of you know movies, TV, whatever, 
that has been written off. And, and it, it, it does worry me. And, and we talked about this, I know, when Batgirl happened. It really does worry me that we have people in charge of studios who don't seem to have any respect or concern for movie making as an art form, as a as a thing that is good in and of itself beyond the profits that it brings you. And, you know, like maybe that, that the Warner Brothers gang are just trying to get in a position where they can do more of that. It doesn't particularly look that way, but it may mm. be that I'm I'm being overly cynical about them. But it does feel like at, at a lot of places now, there are people who are counting numbers first mm. and and doing everything else second. And I know it's the movie business. I'm not I'm not naive about this. You have to you know make money with this stuff. And when with films costing more and more and more to launch, I get it. It is a risk, but you know, as as several people have have pointed out um, over the last few months, historically in Hollywood, yes, people have been all about making money, but they have also been about making movies. And I feel like when you have things like Warner Brothers trying to turn the Lord of the Rings into NFTs, that is not about making movies, and it has that has to be part of the equation. You have to also care about the movies because ultimately, mm. that is better for your brand. That is better for your studios financial health to keep making new things that will capture the public's imagination that you can then franchise mm. out afterwards. But you know, you can't just keep refranchising the same 10 names. You have to have new names. And then you can prequel and remake those to your little heart's content mm. for God's sake. But at least keep giving us something new and don't just prequelize and remake and sequelize all the stuff from the 80s, you know? Anyway, here endeth my rant. <laughs> Uh, what was it we were saying about the old opinions? <laughs> we're rolling out the greatest hits. Yeah, it's been, we've said this before, but what they did to Batgirl and of course that Scooby-Doo movie as well was just absolutely ridiculous mm -hmm. and outrageous. And it has been, to continue the theme of the podcast, been a total clown show over there for the last few months, which is why this is, as I said, this is pretty much the first bit of good publicity they've had mm. since the new guy David Saslav took over and they got rebranded as Warner Brothers Discovery. And by putting two filmmakers in charge here at, at the uh, newly minted DC studios, they're clearly signaling to filmmakers that it it's okay to trust us again. Because it's they must have back. had it's safe to come back. You must have had they must have had a lot of pushback from filmmakers. They must have had a lot of filmmakers saying to them, Well okay, if I set my project up at Warner Brothers, how do I even know it's gonna be released? How do I know it's not just mm. going to be a tax write-off uh, a year from now, or you're not going to can it halfway through, or you're, you're going to interfere with, with me uh, creatively? All those things. And so by having James Gunn, you know, who's been ultra, ultra low budget guy, you yeah. know, starting off with, you know, with Peter Safran on the specials, things like that, ultra low budget. And then he's ultra high budget as well. He's high concept and low concept. And he, you know, he gets it all. So by doing that, you're reassuring filmmakers, but you're also in a way kind of you're leaving no room for excuses anymore. So, you know, the previous DC movies, you know, some have been great, some have not been so great, but you could always kind of go, well, there might've been infighting. There might've been a bit of a muddle at the top. I'm not really entirely sure who's in charge. You know, Zack Snyder was in charge for a little while and they moved on to someone else. And so you get a kind of inconsistency in tone and storytelling. Is Henry Cavill Superman? Is he not Superman? Now he seems to be Superman and a more joyful Superman, which is what he said in interviews this week, that he wants to be a more joyful Superman, which is, of course, kind of directly counter to whatever happened with Superman previously. So I don't know. Listen, we, we, shall, we shall see what happens, but I am optimistic for the future. I will see anything 
James Gunn makes or produces. I'm not always entirely 100% on board with him, but I think he's a really singular voice and I cannot wait to see anything he produces or directs. Which brings us neatly, I would say, to the trailer this week that dropped for the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. So the trailer for this debuted this week on uh, on the internet and this looks like... Uh, it's uh, it's very interesting. It's not what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, which was announced a couple of years ago with James Gunn writing and directing and all the Guardians back, with the possible exception of Zoe Saldana as, as Gamora. Uh, it, I thought it was going to be a kind of Star Wars holiday special type thing, like a sort of variety show with the Guardians at, at its centre. Uh, not as famously terrible as the Star Wars holiday special, of course, but this is seems to be an actual Guardians of the Galaxy little spin-off kind of mini short in which Drax and Mantis in particular uh, want to cheer up Peter Quill because he's feeling a bit down after the events of Avengers Endgame. Uh, he's lost Gamora and spoiler alert, and they want to cheer him up by going to Earth and getting him a Christmas present, and what better Christmas present than Kevin Bacon? Superb. I mean, look, I, I think this is exactly the kind of gonzo thing you want to do for a one-off Guardians of the Galaxy special. Um, I mean, not to be cynical, but setting it on Earth saves you probably, you know, $10 million you can't afford on a one-off Christmas special um, mm-hmm. and you know, in, in developing weird alien worlds. But also it's somewhere we haven't really seen the Guardians interact with before. And it's, it's quite a, a fertile ground for misunderstanding, especially from Drax and Mantis, who have a, a, a near, you know, boundless capacity Childlike. for misunderstanding. Yeah, it's it's a go- yeah. it's gorgeous and it's glorious, and there is a long-standing, is very established, you know, love for Footloose uh, in Star Lord. I I feel like this all hangs together, um, and I was amused. I'm I am that big Egypt, and I was highly mm-hmm. amused, and plan to cover it on my Christmas movie podcast, Bar Humbug. There you go. It all works out nicely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but another MCU news this week, there was the trailer for the first trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, in which we see that the, the whole gang, so Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Michelle Pfeiffer, who does get more to do in this trailer than she did in the last film, yep. uh, and Michael Douglas are sucked into the quantum realm after the newly recast Cassie Lang, Catherine Newton as Cassie Lang, Scott Lang's daughter, uh, who's now a genius scientist for reasons, builds some sort of machine that sends a signal, beams a signal into the quantum realm and something bad summons them. And that something bad may well be Jonathan Majors as Kang, the conqueror, the big bad guy, or so we think anyway of the next couple of phases of the MCU. Uh, And I thought this was a really fun and interesting trailer, which looks trippy as hell. Um, There's a little bit of green screen-itis, but of course, of course it is. Of course you're going to get that because it's a completely new realm that is unlike anything we've ever seen before. But uh, there's lots of intriguing stuff going on here. And also, for me, it seemed to intimate a darker tone than we've been used to in the two Ant-Man movies so far. Yeah, I think higher stakes for sure for him at least. You know, yes, last time there was the can we get Janet's back from the quantum realm, but that wasn't so personal to him, except sort of you know through 
yeah through hope and and uh through hank um so so yeah this 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 seems to make the, the stakes a bit more personal um it's interesting to me i'm not sure what wasp the title refers to because it kind of seems like evangeline lily doesn't have a huge amount to do as hope i i once again look forward to literally any character development on her part um but i think they might genuinely be referring more to janet in this case because she at least seems to have a role here and some work to do, albeit mostly exposition so far. But it is a trailer, so it's very hard to tell. Yeah, I think it looks cool. I like Ant-Man. I don't love Ant-Man as much as, you know, some, but I like it, so. No Sonny Birds, though. No Sonny Birds. So, well, Chris, look, the dream is on. alive. It's only a trailer. They may be saving him for, for the big reveal. Apparently he's going to be in Armor Wars. There you go. The you big, see? The, big um, the big Don Cheadle roadie film. I guess that so, makes sense if he's an arms dealer, right? He does, yeah. He's got he's got armor and uh and uh he loves war. war. Yeah. He loves war, yeah. So it's that's why I'm very excited about that. Automatically the best film in the MCU because Sunny Burge is in it marginally topping my previous number one, Ant Man and the Wasp. Yes, very excited about this. Uh Ella, once again are you, are you in <laughs> any way excited about this? stranger who's walked into the room and has asked to point at things that she might recognise. Um, no, I am excited about this. I, I, I like the Ant-Man films. I like not thinking very much and I like laughing. Um, and Good. the Ant-Man films have provided me with this. I really like Catherine Newton as well. Um, I think she's just been great in everything she's everything. done. Yeah. Everything. Um, she was so good and freaky um, with Vince Vaughn. Mm-hmm. Supernatural too. Yeah, Keeps like she's, yeah, she's really good. Uh, no, it looks good. And I mean, also, I do want to see more of Kang because I wasn't the biggest Loki fan um, just in terms <gasps> of the tone. Of, I'm so sorry. Uh, but I feel like Ant-Man is more um, the kind of tone that I enjoy in the MCU. And I really like Kang as a character. So I feel like that should be a nice meeting of minds for me personally. Hmm, yeah, it's going to be interesting because he's he's. This is his big introduction, so they're going to have to pull out all the stops and make I mean, him a formidable really foe well. from the off. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Majors is funny, but I suspect he's not going to be funny in this role. I think this is going to be a much more chilling, um, lethal side of of Kang. Uh, we shall see. We shall see. But uh, that is not my most anticipated threequel next year, folks. What's that, Chris? Nor is it Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Is there a third Mamma Mia film we don't know about? Oh, can you imagine such a thing? <laughs> oh, I don't think I don't think cinema is ready I for wish. that. No, the most anticipated threequel of twenty twenty three is the Equalizer three. Oh, good God! You're on which your is own. filming right now in Istanbul. Why? Why are you here then? Why am I here? I should be on set of the Equalizer three. Antoine Fuqua is back directing Denzel Washington once again as Robert McCall. I am so excited about this, but I'm also excited because they have added to the cast Dakota Fanning. That's right. The Equalizer 3 is also Man on Fire 2. Boom. Take that, cinema. You are not ready, cinema. Cinema is coming for you, cinema. Mm. Sure. Mm. Yes. Oh, great. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. And that's the equalizer. Yes! I've never seen you do this. I'm so excited. He's not even kidding. He he really is. <sighs> Goodness. I'm going to kill each and every one of you, and the only disappointment in it for me is that I'm only going to get to do it once. One of the great tough guy lines in cinema history, delivered by one of the great tough guys in cinema history. The equalizer two power. Boom! Equalizer, boom! Boom! 
So anyway, um, Angelina Jolie is going to star as Maria Callas in a new biopic, uh, which I'm kind of intrigued by. Directed by Pablo Lorraine, who directed Spencer and Jackie. And Jackie. So I didn't love Spencer, if I'm honest, but I did love Jackie. I thought it was fantastic. And Angelina Jolie getting back on the screen is, is very, very good news as far as I'm concerned. I think she's amazing. Yeah, I'm very, very excited about this film. Pablo Lorraine, he just, he rocks. I love his reasoning for making these biopics about you know, famous and misrepresented and misunderstood women. Um, I spoke to him for Empire about Spencer and I asked kind of where it started. And he said that he wanted to make a film about um, an icon that his mum loved. So I don't know Aww. if he's just going through a list of women that his <laughs> mum really loved. And he's like, oh, mum will like this one. Oh yeah, here's another one for her. And it, I hope that's true. Um, I love it. I think it's going to yeah. be so good. If we did that for you guys, if we made a couple of films about the people that your mum loves oh. who who would that who would we be making films I'll be about on, i mean i don't wish to sh- publicly shame my mum, but um julio iglesias would probably come up there i'm mm-hmm. sorry um mm-hmm. she was a spanish teacher you know uh so there's a link there mave binchy i don't know <laughs> look i'm not saying they led them a quite as dramatic a life as maria callas who had numerous affairs a famous rivalry whoever she is you know blah 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 she's an opera singer i said that in the intro promise i, I know it's, it's okay. uh, i'm quoting rem but uh but yeah i think i think uh I think Pablo Lorraine's mum clearly has more exciting mm, taste. Just great taste. My mum would want a biopic about Don Draper, not John Hamm, Don Draper from Mad Men. <laughs> Isn't that what Mad Men is? Yeah, she wants more. She wants mm. she doesn't she doesn't care about any of the other characters. She just wants Don Draper. <laughs> but she just loves him. And like every time she sees him in anything else, she's like, Oh, Don Draper. And I keep telling her. I'm sure yeah, she definitely knows, but she's just refusing. See, which is interesting because the other person that she would like a, a biopic about would be Daniel Craig. And she's seen all the James Bond films and she never calls him James Bond. It's always, she understands Daniel. him on a very kind of, mm. you know, personal level. She has respect for him as an actor, you know? Yeah, fully. Yeah. 100%. I mean, that tops my mum. My mum, my you know, obviously no longer with us, but uh, she loved the likes of Ken Dodd and Freddie Starr. So you'd be getting lots of biopics of... <laughs> People like, I'm pretty sure she had like a fucking Daniel O'Donnell tape or something as well. So we'll probably get a Daniel O'Donnell tape. Uh, Tape? Daniel O'Donnell biopic. I mean, nobody wants that. A Daniel O'Donnell biopic in the style of weird would work. You would have to do it in the style of weird, which we'll be talking about Uh, next week. No spoilers. uh, but I, that, that, that could it, work it just for me. feels wrong. It feels wrong. That would be more terrifying. <laughs> my God, my segues are on fire today. That would be more terrifying, Helen, than The Conjuring 4, which is. is currently in development. It has been announced that David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, who is one person. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like there's four people in there. But no, it is it is one person is going to write the new film. James Wan is going to produce the new film. He's not going to direct it, uh, but it's going to star once again. Patrick Wilson and Fira Farmiga as Ed and Lorraine Warren. And they're going to be battling some demons again and some scary stuff. Uh, and as a fan of the country films, particularly the first two, uh, I'm excited about this, although I do wish James Wan would direct it. And that'd be awesome. He is quite in demand these days, though, you know, so he might occasionally want to sit down, I suppose. <laughs> you might. No, no one. On your feet. Direct that film. <laughs> Damn you. Damn you, direct that film. Uh, yeah, we talked about him last week, didn't we, in our horror movie, Mount Rushmore. Mm. And uh, a couple of people pointed out we, we left off the likes of Terence Fisher, who I was going to say, Helen, you can attest to this. I, I can, uh, yes. Yeah, 
Uh, Terence Fisher, of course, who directed loads of Hammer movies, including two of my favorite horror films of all time. Well, many of my horror, favorite horror films of all time, but the original Dracula, Dracula, and the original, um, the original, the only The Devil Rides Out, which is an amazing Hammer film with Christopher Lee in rare good guy mode. But also, he directed the early Frankenstein films as well, and things like that. And he was he was amazing. And uh, someone said Lucio Fulci. Uh, yeah. Yes, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. But not not for me, not one of my four, not one of my four. But hey, listen, your mileage may vary. Okay, so there is one other thing, which is that there is another Star Wars movie on the way, and this one might actually happen. And it has been developed in secret now for a couple of months with the uh, with a writer's room uh, working on this. I'm I'm not entirely sure about the concept of writers rooms on movies i think that these things should be a little bit more organic than that but you know hey home if it works it works and that writers room has been spearheaded by damon lindelof who's going to be co-writing this screenplay with justin Britt gibson who is a rising star in the world of screenwriting and it's going to be directed by charmine obeyed genoi and we know nothing else apart from the fact that this might be the star wars film that comes out next and first, which would be towards the end of 2025. So we shall see. I mean, they've they've announced Star Wars movies before and never quite got it over the line. Um, if it does come out in 2025, or if a Star Wars comes out in 2025, mm. it will have been six years since The Rise of Skywalker. Jeez. I mean, that, that doesn't seem right to me. That seems, you know, I know, I know taking your time and getting it right, which is exactly what we were preaching during the, the very long DC segment. But it also feels to me like there's... They're, there's people who want to tell Star Wars stories on the big screen. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I absolutely want more Star Wars on the big screen in the same way I preached for years about wanting more Star Trek on the small screen. Um, but at the same time, like, it's not like we've been short of Star Wars content and we've gone a lot longer without anything new. Um, mm. And also we've seen what happens when they rush sometimes. So, you know, if it takes six years to come up with something that they're super excited about, super happy with, and that genuinely feels fresh and different, but still Star Wars, you know, You're fantastic, right. frankly. This could have all been avoided if they had not rushed with The Rise of Skywalker. Exactly. If they hadn't, if they hadn't yeah. rushed into that release date, if they hadn't rushed to replace Colin Trevorrow when he when he left the project and, you know, and then what happened happened, which is weird because obviously the movie was a, was a huge hit financially, but but still the 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 uh the repercussions from that have been felt. That is for sure. Uh anyway, should we move on to our first guest this week? Let's do it. Who do you want? Do you want Georgina Campbell or do you want Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane? Tell you what, I'll remove the option. I'll remove the, the choice, the illusion of choice. Uh, I'm going to say Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane okay. because Georgina Campbell should come after we talked about Barbarian. Okay. So that leaves us with Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane, who are the stars of this week's rom-com Bros. And Billy Eichner, of course, you know Billy Eichner. Billy on the street. Name a woman. Ella Kemp. Yes. There you go. Whew. That was a tough one. Um, <laughs> uh, Billy Agner, of course, yes, as, as Helen said, he's the star of Billy on the Street. He's a very, very funny comedian. And he is he is the writer and star of Bros, as I said, co-wrote it with Nicholas Stoller. And Bros is a comedy which purports to be, or at least was marketed initially, as the first major mainstream studio-backed gay rom-com. There have been, of course, other queer rom-coms in the past. Happiest Season last year, for example, mm -hmm. was was one. Uh, but this is the first one that's had a uh, major studio back in it and has had most of the people who've worked on it, most of the cast, 
most of the the behind the scenes people uh, are also LGBTQ plus. So uh, it's very, very important in that way, but it also exists as a movie in its own right. And it's a very funny movie, I thought. And I was delighted to chat to Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane this week. And they play Bobby and Aaron, who are two guys who meet, fuck a lot, and then fall in love, question mark. And so this is, if you know anything about Billy Eichner's work, you know that it's pretty no-holds-barred, and this podcast interview is no exception. So apologies in advance, but also do please enjoy Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane in conversation with me. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the stars of Bros, Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. How the devil are you both? We are great. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, truly, truly. Yeah, especially since uh, your film, Billy, has shown the way for podcast hosts. showing that podcast hosts can be sexually desired which might be the most revolutionary thing about the movie yeah i recognize myself happy to offer the world that representation (laughs) have you been have you been embraced since by podcast hosts going yes you nailed it that is exactly our lives Yes, cranky gay podcast hosts. <laughs> no, but see, I see. I disagree. I think the idea that like the podcast is actually like one of the most intimate forms of entertainment. You I know? think that's true, and it it feels so deeply personal, and it's very very believable that you can fall in love with somebody by just hearing their ideas. Like I I, I find I find podcasts like during the pandemic, I actually listened to a lot of podcasts, and they like were my friends. They were mm. the people that I would like, you know, listen to every week. You hear their ideas. I always jerk off thinking about podcast hosts. <laughs> They've replaced porn stars. No, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said we could do it, say or say anything we wanted. You to. also gave us permission to go on tangent. Yeah, yeah I exactly. did. I did. But I actually, you know, one thing that I um, I'm happy, uh, you know, about in terms of the movie that we were able to write and. And the one that we were able to make is that, you know, the characters really, they talk a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and they're, my character is very verbal, but also Luke's character. He doesn't talk as much. He's more quiet, but he is a person who has thoughts and opinions and ideas and they banter and they debate and they are allowed to be verbal characters, yeah. right? Whose intellects are really ultimately what turns them on about each other in addition to whatever physical attraction they have for each other. And, you know, when I was growing up, we saw that in movies all the time, Yes, you know, where the, where they were very dialogue heavy and the characters were allowed to lead with words and thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Um, and we don't see that as much anymore in any movies, straight, gay, whatever they might be. And I was, I'm glad that we were able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, when Harry Met Sally is is name checked in the film, I mean, and that's just wall to wall dialogue. It really is in a way that is so bizarrely um, foreign to our ears. I actually went yeah. back and watched a lot of them, and it's like, wow, they really are talking a lot. Yeah, and if you watch, I mean, they they were indie movies, I guess, but you know, the Richard Linklater yeah. trilogy, you know, which which I revisited recently, and I'm I was delighted at how well it held up. I think I even liked it more now watching it as an adult and maybe someone who's starved for dialogue driven films like that, where you really understand beyond the superficial, beyond the physical attraction or even the sexual chemistry, why the characters really fall for each other. Yeah. You know, there's like an intellectual bond there and they challenge each other and 
that's that's just as sexy as whatever physical chemistry they might have. Yeah, that that, that you can fall in love through the exchange of ideas yeah. as, as part of falling in love. Yeah, it's part of it. Not yeah. all of Not it, all of but it, part yeah. of it. You also yeah. need to want to fuck. Yeah, totally. <laughs> A gay sex scene <laughs> in podcast form is, yeah, is not, exactly. it's not great. Again, again, you told us we could say anything we wanted to say. I know, I know. I'm hoist by my own petard on on this, uh, but. <laughs> But you, you mentioned, I mean, I, I want to talk about the, the connection between, between Bobby and Aaron in this movie, but there's obviously a very, a, a very conscious choice to show the physical side of their relationship as well. I don't recall there being a scene in You've Got Mail where Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan go to town with each other. Maybe they cut it out. No, but I wish there had been. I mean, just you saying it sounds hot. <laughs> no, in a funny sort of way, those movies are actually much closer to the Hallmark universe, yeah. you know, yeah. in, in the sense that the kiss happens at the end and we just sort of know that they're going to eventually have sex. You know, it, it, it's much more chaste in that, in that way. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, what we were trying to do with bros is to be as funny as possible, but also honest, you know? And, and the fact is like these guys, you know, wouldn't go beyond a certain amount of times hanging out with each other and take each other seriously as sort of romantic counterparts without jumping into bed first. That just would not happen, you know? Um, and so, I mean, look, maybe it would happen for someone that doesn't happen to with any gay men I know. And if you're on date seven and you haven't hooked up, then I think something is probably wrong. <laughs> One so, of you is in jail. Yeah. <laughs> that. that would actually explain it. I mean, you know, um, but I think that, you know, uh, I, I think showing the sex, uh, it was interesting because, and again, it's not sex. Like everyone's watching actual hardcore porn on their phones all the time. And then we have this silly sex scene in bros and everyone's like, oh my God. I'm like, what? You watched four hardcore porn scenes this morning. <laughs> while you were driving. Literally. To yeah. While you were planning what you were going to say about how shocking the scenes in bros are. <laughs> um, and so everyone's a little hypocritical about that, I think. Um, but, yeah. but at the same time, the sex scenes are there for so many reasons. They, you know, they're there for comedy, for physical comedy. They're explosively funny. The audience loves them. And then we get to see all the things that play out during sex, whether it's something that's actually a turn on or something that's awkward, silly, funny, romantic. You know, the scenes become more romantic as the movie evolves and as the characters get closer together and do become more comfortable being vulnerable mm. and intimate with each other, which is the story that we're trying to tell. Mm. Um, so I think they serve a number of functions and they're just kind of fun, you know, and, and if there is a little bit of a shock value to it, that's part of what makes the movie exciting. Mm. It did the uh, the first sex scene in particular. Uh, it, oh, it tickled me so much. Uh, I won't give it away too much for people who haven't seen the film yet, but yeah. it's very, very funny. And Thank it you. just made me think that you guys must have been keeping your intimacy coordinator on their toes because <laughs> you, you get to know each other fairly intimately, I would say, in that scene. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it wasn't a super choreographed scene. You know, I think that that was part of the fun of it is if if our intimacy coordinator was successful in anything, it was sort of brokering a conversation where we both were able to communicate with each other in the moment. No, or uh, let's stop. Like, that's really what it, it was about. It wasn't super choreographed. Yeah. Okay. And I think an intimacy coordinator is really important to have. I think it's I think it's great that they now exist. Totally. Um, but you don't want people thinking about that while they're watching the movie, you know, that you want to believe that the characters are really just kind of getting it on and and are, are feeling increasingly 
free with each other you know to have fun um and you know that's the vibe we're going for yeah that that's that's true billy and and, and, and i was there i was in that, that space yes but there's also a bit and it will reveal a little bit that happens in in the first sex scene sure. there's a bit where there's a, a foot mouth interface yeah okay now do you check with each other beforehand? Do you wash your feet beforehand? No, Are you going? That part happened very organically. That was not in the script, actually. It was the yin to the my hand in his mouth, yang. Right, because at one point, well, now we're giving it away. But sorry, but like I'm stuffing my hand. His entire hand is in my mouth <laughs> at one point. So it only felt correct that he should put his foot into my mouth. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> that's really the progression of any relationship. Really? Yeah. I mean, that really tells you the whole story. It's almost like a silent film. Remember The Artist? <laughs> Bros is really like the sequel to The Artist. Oh, I was going to say Charlie Chaplin's Modern Modern Times. Modern Times. Yeah, yeah. that too. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you watch Modern Times, The Artist, and Bros, I, I look at them as a trilogy. We should do like a Criterion movie night. <laughs> we should. And see how they're all connected. Yeah, foot and mouth night on Criterion. <laughs> yeah, we are in Britain. Let's be careful That's with true. foot and mouth disease. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was ravaged the beef industry yes we're still not over it but yeah if you thought if you thought a black and white silent version of bros might might work very nicely if you consider that beautiful gorgeous yeah, very I think serious that'd be great. i think some people on twitter would have preferred it <laughs> 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 although then we really are just doing a porn i mean <laughs> and again i think some people on twitter would have preferred it. but then how long would those dialogue t- the title cards take billy um, i mean very good yes the yeah. dialogue would, would all been subtitles mm-hmm. but like those old-timey subtitles where you have to like cut to a blank screen and it's just writing <laughs> It's just five minutes of writing, and then <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and an organ, and an organist. <laughs> this organist and movie theaters. live organ would have really added to bros. I, I so- think. I think. I mean, there's, there's so many poorly chosen words in that sentence, Luke. But yes, I think you could. You could. <laughs> or very well chosen. I don't. Yeah, precisely. I don't think bros is lacking for live organ action. If, if, if I'm honest. That's a good quote. That's a good quote. That's great. The marquee. You could have an yeah. You could have an organ along a version of of Bros. It would, it would pack theaters out. That, that's for sure. But I, I wanted to get back to the the connection between between Bobby and Aaron and and the the dialogue scene. There's an amazing there's an amazing scene about halfway through Billy where your character has a, a, a kind of revelation, a, a monologue about confidence and about covering up certain aspects of his sexuality over the years. And mm-hmm. as as the writer of this, you know, how how long did you spend on things like that and on those exchanges between Aaron and Bobby where they're challenging each other and discovering new things about each other all the time? Yeah, well, I worked on the script with Nick Stoller, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote the movie with me and who directed the movie um, for five years. Um, and, you know, you just keep you kind of keep returning to it over and over again and, and trying to get more nuanced and, and more thoughtful. Um, and with that monologue in particular, you know, it's pretty, it's one of the only times, maybe the only time the movie allows itself to speak earnestly without topping things with a joke. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there are a couple of jokes at the very beginning of it, but as it moves along, it becomes mainly very earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, it's 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 serving a few different functions this uh, on a macro level um, or a meta level, I guess you could say it's it's speaking to the LGBTQ community and maybe people in all kinds of marginalized groups. I've had people come to me 
um, women or people of color who maybe weren't queer, but who said there were things I said in that monologue that really resonated with them. Um, and I think because it's speak, it's it's about being an outsider um, and having to really um, stick to it and and forge a path for yourself, regardless of all the obstacles and that are placed in your way. And I think people from any marginalized group have experience with those sorts of things, especially in Hollywood, which up until recently uh, was really slow to progress in terms of giving people from marginalized groups, you know, not only roles in movies, but also power over telling their own stories and producing their own, st own, own stories on the scale that we were able to make bros at a major studio. Um, and I also wanted it to speak to the generations of LGBTQ folks who did not get these types of opportunities, mm. right? Mm. I think as celebratory a moment as the movie is, and it's 95% of it is a comedy with a ton of jokes and physical comedy, and, mm -hmm. and it's, an, it's a device to entertain people. But at the same time, I thought that the movie needed to acknowledge and ask ourselves, you know, why it took so long. Uh, to get here, because th there's also a personal price you pay for it. It's not just like a socio-political thing to talk about theoretically. You know, there's a personal price that gets paid when you don't allow people to to succeed, right? Or to you know, sort of crack that glass ceiling. Mm. Um, uh, and I wanted to acknowledge that. And also, in terms of our story, the the one that we're telling in the movie, that's basically Bobby and Aaron, who both have such a hard time being vulnerable with each other and with other people, that's a chance for Bobby to say like, here's all the shit underneath my very confident surface. And I hope that you love me in spite of all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, it's serving that purpose as well. And it turns out I do. He does. <laughs> yeah. They let you fuck me that night. And then, I, and then Luke says, will you fuck me now that I've heard about your dead parents? <laughs> <laughs> that just makes Luke's character so hard when I talk about my parents being dead. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's the icebreaker. It's a deal sealer. It's such a turn on. Yeah. Can you tell me more about your dad? Yeah, this is why uh, Batman gets so much action. <laughs> right, but, but in truth, like I, I really do think about relationships I've had, and when the person says the vulnerable thing, it is so moving mm -hmm. you know i remember being uh on a date with somebody and telling and hearing him tell the story about how he used to be bullied by the kids and on his birthday the kids in the neighborhood stole his bicycle and he was so afraid to admit that story to me but i really remember it mm -hmm. opening my heart up to him in a brand new way oh, <laughs> it's cute it is true it is true Oh man, did he did he have dead parents as well, Luke? Just for that, I dumped him immediately. After he told him. <laughs> You're like, that's so cute. My heart is open. I no longer want to have sex with you. That's it, it, it. Really, truly, is the opposite. Though. I know, and it is a lesson that we have to keep being reminded of. I think it is challenging for certain people, though. Yeah, um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, conflating vulnerability and sexiness. Yeah, is is an interesting topic. Yes. you know, um, and yeah. sometimes it's challenging to do. Yeah, you know, the thing about that scene as well, I thought was really interesting, is that it's 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 in many ways the most confident scene of the film as well because mm -hmm. it, the camera holds on you. There's yeah. no music. There's nothing telling the audience no how to music. feel. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I'm really glad that we just we stuck to our guns there and we really let the scene breathe. Um, and I really lived in fear uh, for years of 
some studio exec telling us that we had to cut that down or we had to add music or it had to be tighter. We had to add jokes. And so Universal's credit from the very first time they saw a cut of the movie, including that scene, they said, don't touch it. Leave it exactly the way it is. I was shocked. I was so happily surprised and and really grateful for that. It was also one of the first it was one of the first scenes we shot, weirdly, when we began production, which was really strange mm-hmm. for me because I'm thinking I'm going to do this Judd Apatow rom-com, which is just going to be filled with all kinds of, you know, foot and mouth type scenes. <laughs> yeah. But it, it set a really great sort of tone. And it was like, it can only be funny if it's also really true and really real and really moving. Mm-hmm. But I do remember feeling... In a in a delightful, useful way, disoriented on that first day of filming. Like wow. it was an odd thing to have to shoot that yeah. on the first day because it's not really indicative of uh the rest of the movie, but it's such an important part of it. It grounds the movie. And a useful touchstone yeah. that that's what we're going to essentially be working towards. Mm-hmm. That people that these two guys are gonna yeah. be close enough to be able to have that, that moment. moment. Yeah. yeah. And uh, look, I've got to let you guys go in a second, but look, uh, obviously there's there's a, a fair amount of riffing on Hallmark Channel movies in, yes. in this film. Was was that in the movie before you signed on or was that added? I promise you it absolutely was. It was. I, yeah. I remember reading the script the first time and um, my agent saying there's a lot of Hallmark jokes in there. And I was like, and they're all really funny and really true. What's actually interesting is a lot of the Hallmark jokes in the first draft that I read, which was now almost three and a half, four years ago were different because Hallmark has actually evolved. Right. Hallmark has actually opened itself up a little bit. So the original jokes were much more about uh, Hallmark 1.0. Right. That's so true. I forgot about that. Yeah. And Hallmark has evolved. Um, Right. And a testament to, you know, sort of Billy's observation about sort of popular culture and, you know, things that people, people warm to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, I've got to go. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've got to. I've got to ask: Do you think anyone's jerked off to this interview at all? I Is I, so? I'm going to. The sound of my own voice. Nothing turns me on more than that. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and again, 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 I speak for no one on Twitter when I say that. <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. On that note, on that bombshell, Billy, Luke, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank pleasure. you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that was Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. And stop jerking off at home, all right? (laughs) Keep your hands where we can see them. This is a family podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Good Lord. All right, good Lord indeed. Shall we move into this week's reviews section? Let's talk about the films that are out in the multiplex and on your silverplex this week. Shall we start with bros? Yeah, why not? Hell's Bells. Yeah. So um, uh, Billy Eichner plays Bobby Lieber, um, who is uh, fairly happy. <laughs> Must have taken ages single- to come up with that name. Like, <laughs> know, right? how, how do I make them not think I'm Billy Eichner? <laughs> <laughs> totally different person, because instead of being you know, a TV broadcaster, he's a podcast broadcaster. Um, mm. And he's also uh, heavily involved in the setting up of the first national LGBTQ museum um, and is, is working on that when he meets... Aaron, that's uh, McFarland's character, who is a, a lawyer and, um, you know, just just shagging about, basically. Uh, so the two of them kind of hook up, like each other, amuse each other in ways that maybe, you know, not all of their partners have done and start trying to figure out, you know, 
do they want a bit more out of this? It's one of those rom-coms that's more about people talking about being in love and whether that's a good idea or not, rather than having sort of manufactured obstacles that come up into the way. Um, McFarlane, if people have seen him before, you've probably seen him in a Hallmark Christmas movie, and those <laughs> are full of those kind of manufactured obstacles to true love. So it's, it's pleasant in that sense that this goes for the more When Harry Met Sally approach, which is that the real obstacle is just getting over yourself right yeah. and and connecting mm. with another person that's that's what i think is really really good about this and i think at times the script for this really really sings um and it is also really great to have authentic lgbt plus you know representation on screen the um the conversations about opening the museum and what kind of exhibits should be in the final little bit that they have to fill i thought i find often very funny I smiled throughout. I laughed frequently. I think it works as a comedy. My problem with it was that it, I didn't know which kind of comedy it always wanted to be. Sometimes it seemed a very, very broad, kind of Apatowian, kind of uh, not quite gross like comedy, but kind of a little bit of shock value comedy. And then at times it seemed to want to be a very sincere, very mainstream, very old fashioned kind of When Harry Met Sally comedy and and other things in between. And, and it just sort of it didn't choose a comic tone for me. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like I say, I laughed at all these different tones and all these different scenes, but it didn't hang together. It didn't cohese in the way that I maybe wanted it to, to, to stand up there with the really greatest rom-coms. I think at times it felt like they had contempt for the greatest rom-coms or, or some of the contrivances thereof. And you know, at the same, I know this is trying to do something different, but it's also trying to do something the same. And I think you have to have respect a little bit for the for the rules of the genre. So that may be unfair, but at times I felt like it didn't quite hang together. Well, of course, it is Apatowian because it's produced by Judd Apatow, yeah. uh, and in some ways, it bears the hallmarks of Judd Apatow's previous work in that it's a little bit all over the place um, and it's a bit meandering. Uh, mm -hmm. And also Nicholas Stoller's previous work. I mean, for example, I, I really didn't like the five-year engagement. And there are, actually are echoes of the five-year engagement in this, but he's also the guy who did the, you know, the, the Bad Neighbours movies and, and the Muppets. So he knows where the funny bone is located. And he co-wrote this with, with Bobby Lieber. Sorry, Billy Eichner. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there, there's there, at times for me, it was a little bit muddled in terms of the setup. So what is he? Is he a podcaster who's very successful or is he the creator of this museum? Because only one of those is important to the plot. And only one of those really goes anywhere. Mm -hmm. And one of them seems to be a way into just, it almost feels to me like he wasn't a podcaster and then they needed a way to introduce the movie and then he became a podcaster. <laughs> yeah. It feels to me a little bit like that. But I thought it was really, really sweet. I thought it was really charming. Uh, it makes a clear decision, as we talked about with with Billy and Luke, you know, to, to go there in terms of depicting sex, which most rom-coms don't do. Uh, and I don't know how it would feel, honestly, if You've Got Mail or When Harry Met Sally or While You Were Sleeping had a an extended five-minute sequence where, you know, Bill Pullman and Sandra Bullock go to town with each other. I'd probably like it if I'm thinking, you know, if I'm being honest, but it would also be, it would take me out of the movie a little bit. But here it kind of makes sense it works it fits in and also those scenes can be very very funny i think they can and i think there is there is a point to be made here that people have been uh you know gay people have been 
less apt to see themselves reflected on screen. Like gay kisses have been more controversial in inverted commas than than straight kisses. And and similarly with gay sex scenes. Um, yeah, if you look at the ratings decisions over the past 40, 50 years, you will see that any kind of sexual activity between uh, LGBT people will get you slapped with an R rating or an NC-17 when essentially equivalent straight material won't. So I think there's a, there's a point to be made there. There's a definite you know reason that all that, all that exists. It worked really well for me. I thought it was very funny, uh, like in the same way, very funny, very sweet, very well acted. The one thing that that irritated me a little bit was moments where I kind of felt like the film kept trying to explicitly speak about what the film is and how important it was, which it is. But I feel like so much of the film saying, like so much of the film being like, look, it's just another rom-com. It's a rom-com. It's not a big deal. You know, it's just like, it's a rom-com about two gay guys and, you know, you don't have to make a big fuss about it. I feel like there were kind of meta moments in the film, which repeatedly were like, Hey, do you remember how important this is? Do you remember like, look, look at what we're doing. Um, Which I thought because it was so well acted and like, I think Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane have really good chemistry and they're just just really, you know, really nice, really lovely to watch. It, it like it kind of took me out of it each time. Which, when I'm watching a rom com, I don't really want to do. I just want to follow them and, you know, what they're up to mm. and just just watch them hanging out, really. Mm. And I know that's obviously always a struggle when like you are making something that is very important and is a landmark and is you know special for all of these different ways. But I kind of felt like I would prefer to read that before or after. Or, or realise that for yourself. And it's mm-hmm. also, by the way, a great... I hope it launches McFarlane to, to greater heights because he's, so he's super charming in it. Yeah. Super, super charming. He deserves a much bigger career than he has. Mm-hmm. Marvel or DC or whoever, give him a shout. Come on. I was looking at him going, that's Jack Reacher. That's like the next big action hero. Where's this guy been for the last 10 years? And he's been in Hallmark movies. And again, there's not, not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> as Jerry Seinfeld might say. But cast this guy. Jesus Christ. Do I have to do everything myself? James Gunn. Cast him now. That's an order. Four stars then for bros. There we go. Four stars then for bros. And next up is a film that's now out on Netflix. This is The Good Nurse. Now, I will say this was Empire's choice of film at the LFF this year, the London Film Festival. We we present a film every year at the Empire Gala. And this year we chose The Good Nurse, uh, which is directed by Tobias Lindholm, written by Christy Wilson-Cairns, and stars Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne as... Uh, two nurses who work at a hospital in New Jersey and when patients start dying, suspicion falls on one of them. Mm. And uh, it's, it's tricky with this because this is a very, very high profile true life story. Mm. Let's just say one of them turned out to be the most prolific serial killer in the history of, well, anywhere that we know of. Um, Ella, yeah. what's this one like? Uh, this one is... It's a slow burn. It's very grueling. It is, I mean, it is effectively a serial killer film, but it doesn't feel like what I usually expect when I say the word serial killer film. It's not, um, I don't, it's not a genre film. It's not really terrifying in a jump scare, in a gore, in a overtly horror kind of way in any way it's very clinical it's very precise and i i'm 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 trying to say that as a compliment because i feel like this film could very easily be written off as boring um because 
it's much more interested in... So I spoke to Christy for Empire um, about the film a little while back, and she was saying that, yeah, she did have in mind that she wanted to make a different kind of serial killer movie. And I think the thing that makes it so different and the thing that makes it quite tricky to appreciate as, you know, your standard horror film is the fact that there is a human being who is a serial killer, but so much of the film is concerned with the role played by the systems that this killer operates in, the healthcare systems that a lot of people find themselves trapped in, which has nothing to do with being a serial killer or being a victim of a serial killer. And I just found that supremely interesting. Obviously it takes place in the US, but Chrissy was very precise about pointing out like, you know, how fortunate we are in England to have the NHS and things like that and how it's just so difficult in America in many ways, you can very easily be caught in very unfair situations, which um, either Jessica Chastain or Eddie Redmayne gets caught in. It's really sad. It's really sad and really depressing because I think both actors put in really, really good performance. They're very, I think they're very restrained. I think both actors, I like both actors a lot, but I think they're very good at doing very outlandish is the wrong word just very big performances and they often play characters you know like full of character and full of color whereas i think this demands a much more um a much more tired performance which i think is something that i've noticed a fair bit in you know certain films and tv shows that i've seen take place in hospital like when ben wishel was in this is going to hurt just the exhaustion that you see from all the doctors and nurses i think that kind of comes across here as well I don't know if I'm selling this as like an entertaining watch, um, but I think it's really, really good. It's so solid. And I just think I kind of like how unsentimental it is. And I think when you're trying to shine a light on the the unreal injustice and cover-ups that you have both at the level of hospitals and, and um, systems, which mean that this serial killer who is the most prolific in recorded US history is someone who we've never known about. And I feel like if you want to shine a light on that, the fact and the truth itself is kind of shocking enough that you don't need to orchestrate any kind of um, horribly theatrical film around it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it really works for me. I wasn't very happy when I finished watching it, but I'm glad I watched it. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, I think it has a lot to say about exactly that, about how the systems we build can really uh, become so worried about protecting themselves that they can accidentally protect bad actors within the system as well. Not in the sense of being a bad at acting. No, very good actors. Yes, very, Mm. very good actors in this case. Mm. Um, But you're right, it is a slow burner and it does kind of build gradually and, you know, it's it's not going to be for everybody, but I, I thought it was brilliantly acted mm. and really cleverly put together for all the reasons you've said. It's not trying to do the usual serial killer thing. It's trying to tell a different story. And I think that one that's really, really worth telling. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I echo pretty much everything everyone said there. Uh, I will say, for some reason, I decided to be coy about the, the, the true identity of the murder in this film. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's a matter of public record. And also, I talk about it very openly <laughs> with Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne and Tobias Lindholm and Christy Wilson-Cairns on a Good Nurse podcast special, which is out right now in your feeds. I don't know, I don't know why I did that, if I'm honest with you, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe someone yeah. here listening wants to be shocked. Maybe. Maybe people do. People are very spoiler phobic, aren't they, these days? They, you know, mm-hmm. they, anything that could be remotely spoilerific and they just go, ah, don't spoil that film for me. And it's like, it's on the internet. Not the film. The film's not on the internet, but the information about the film is on the internet. Anyway, four stars for The Good Nurse. Um, speaking of spoilers, how the hell are we going to talk about Barbarian? 
how the hell am I going to interview the Star Barbarian without spoiling it? <laughs> I feel like we talk about it, the plot, very, very little. Okay. So, Barbarian is the new film written and directed by Zach Kreger, and uh, it stars Georgina Campbell as Tess, who is a woman who turns up late one night to this uh, house in a suburb of Detroit. She's got a job interview the next day. Uh, she uh, arrives in the pouring rain. It's dark already. She goes to get, it's basically an Airbnb situation. She, so she has to, you know, put in the code to the lockbox and get the key out and blah, blah, blah. But when she opens the lockbox, the key is gone. And it turns out that's because Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård, is already in the house. And she's kind of in a sticky situation. There's a convention in town, apparently, and there are no hotel rooms to be had. So she decides to go into the house and stay the night along with Keith. And then things go a bit wrong. I don't feel like I need to tell you anything more than that. You know, I will say that Bill Skarsgård is in this, which might, for some people, be a little bit of a red flag. Um, but yeah, it goes to some unexpected places. It has some twists and turns. I, I was terrified, but as we've already established many times on this podcast, I am a wuss, so you do have to control for that. But I will say that there was a section of this film about 40 minutes into this movie where I was like, if, if one more scary thing happens or threatens to happen, I'm going to literally die of fright. Um, I need something else to, you know, happen, basically. And, uh, and then it kind of did. So there's, there's, there's weird tonal shifts in this film. There are, there's moments of humor, there's moments of drama, there's moments of kind of getting in some really uncomfortable territory. And uh, even beyond the whole, you know, bad stuff that you would expect of, of a horror film. At first, I loved that the characters seemed to make very reasonable, very sensible choices for the most part, even if it put them in scary situations. But I will be honest, there is a point as in many horror movies, where they stop making sensible choices and become <laughs> total idiots uh, at times, um, which is a little bit of a shame. But at the same time, it makes for something that I just had an absolute blast with. It's very scary, at least again, by my standards, and very funny and and very, you know, very unusual. I haven't seen anything quite like this all year. If you can see it in a crowded cinema, I know certainly in the States as we speak, it's already on HBO Max. But if you, here in the UK, if you can go to a cinema and see this, it is a hell of a cinema experience. I haven't seen it with an audience. In fact, I didn't see Bros with an audience either. I saw oh, no. Bros with literally one other person in a, in a screening that was put on for us this week. And, you know, so I, felt, I, I thought the fact that it was still making me laugh a lot was good, was encouraging. And the fact that this movie scared the crap out of me, even though I was watching it on my computer, is also good, is also mm. encouraging. Zach Craig is a really interesting filmmaker because he was part of the sketch comedy troupe, The Whitest Guys You Know. And he, along with another member of that troupe, uh, wrote and directed a few years ago a, a comedy called Miss March, a sex comedy, a teen sex comedy, which I remember just being atrocious. And so... The fact that he's gone full Jordan Peele and and just out of nowhere produced one of the best horror films I've seen all year uh, is kind of wild to me. But it is. It's really, really good. It's really well written, really well acted. Uh, it's got a... How can I even say this? Uh, it's got a an antagonist that is a very memorable... Mm -hmm. new uh, addition to the horror annals. 
And uh, yeah, scared the bejesus out of me. It's uh, very creepy, beautifully shot as well. Really well well shot, yeah. Really well shot. And, uh, you know, apparently he kind of wrote it almost in a fever dream. So more fever dreams, please, for this man. Uh, We are doing a spoiler special for this movie. You will be delighted to know. Uh, Helen texted after she saw Barbarian the other night. She was like, I would like a spoiler special, please, just so I can process my my anguish and my fear. And I was like, way ahead of you, recorded it last night. So we are... (laughs) We are going to uh, get our half of that recorded as soon as possible. I'd love to get it up in time for Halloween, but we shall see because Halloween's on Monday. But we shall see what we can do on that one. But yes, four stars for Barbarian. I thought it was absolutely tremendous. Next up, we have Triangle of Sadness, the latest movie from Ruben Ostland. Ella. So this is uh, the latest Eat the Rich satire from Ruben Ostland, a man who... I don't likes, know how. Likes eating a rich. I don't know how he keeps on doing it. Still hungry. Um, so yeah, this is his new one, uh, which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival this year and won the coveted Palme d'Or, which is the second time that Ostend has won this after winning in 2017 with his film The Square, which satirised the art world. Uh, with this film, he's turning to the world of fashion uh, and influencers and just kind of the beauty industry more broadly. We start with um, Carl and Yaya, who are a couple, they're both beautiful, successful models. Uh, It's Harris Dickinson and the amazing, tragically passed away, um, Charlie Dean plays Yaya. Um, She's incredible. It's it's like such a breakout performance. And she sadly passed away not long before the film was released. Um, So it kind of starts with the two of them. And they then join many other very rich people on a yacht. Uh, and things go wrong on the yacht, basically. It's quite interesting because Ruben Osland uh, isn't worried about spoiling his films at all. Like any in any interview he does, he will tell you the start, middle and end of his next film. I'm not going to do that because um, I just think it's very fun to watch it all play out. But suffice to say that the very happy, very rich people uh, are quickly not that and yeah so it features a really good performance from harris dickinson who mm. i really think mm. is like one of the best young british actors working today like he's he, he he broke out somehow only five years ago with beach rats which was an amazing film uh tiny independent film from a filmmaker called eliza hitman but since then he's 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 been in everything at all different scales like he was alongside he he was in the second maleficent film uh, like alongside, uh, you know, Al Fanning and Angelina Jolie. And he also joined the Kingsman franchise for the third film, The King's Man. And just constantly has, like he has one foot in independent film and one foot in major kind of, I suppose, franchise, bigger budget filmmaking at all times, which I think is really smart and really cool. And I think he's just very good in 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 all of it, really. Um, so yeah, but he's definitely not the only part of Triangle of Sadness. It, it becomes very much an ensemble piece. One of my favorite performers in it is a Filipino actor called uh, Dolly De Leon, who she's worked so much in the Philippines, but you know, this is her first um, kind of big role in like an English language, more mainstream picture, I suppose. And she plays a toilet cleaner called Abigail, who just really uh, comes into her own in the film, uh, which I think broadly is very, very funny. It's very uncomfortable. It's very sharp. It's a bit gross in one scene in particular which uh, Ruben Osler does a lot in all of his films. He'll he'll be like really clever for about 90% of the film and there'll be 10% where he's just like, 
how gross and childish can I be? It's always deliberate. Like he'll admit this first. Um, so it's always funny seeing that kind of balance and that kind of push and pull, uh, which I think works quite well. I think the film's a little bit too long because it's kind of, in, there's you've got three different acts and they're not evenly weighted. You kind of just have to trust how invested you are in the characters and how much you want to follow them to see them suffer, really. Um, so I'd say that because it's, relying on how much you enjoy watching these characters it kind of runs for a bit too long because it's like let's just watch them suffer some more and some more so i would have cut maybe half an hour i think it could usefully you lose half an hour if i'm honest it's what two hours 20 minutes yeah but i mean you're you're not wrong the performances are fantastic i I also uh mentioned zlatko boric um Mm. as the sort of russian oligarch dimitri um who is really really entertaining and quite quite horrific but yeah it, it, this is uh very original um very scatological at times mm. like so so much so and um and and really funny and sharp and and yeah very pointed oh, it's very it. original but i would also say that for any listeners who might not be familiar with ruben osland or this kind of film if you like the white lotus i think this yeah very much works in a similar world to that. Obviously very different kind of things, but um, I feel like the writers and filmmakers have similar concerns and similar things that they are very irritated about within the world, which are very funny. All right then, four stars then for Triangle of Sadness. And last but not least, uh, but very quickly, is Wendell and Wild on Netflix. Hell's Bells. This is the new film from Henry Selleck and Jordan Peele. And if that doesn't have you in butts in seats, um, I mean, it's not difficult. It's on Netflix, so you only have to go to your sofa. Um, then I don't know what would. But um, Selleck and Peele wrote the screenplay together. Um, Peele and Keegan Michael, Michael Key play the titular Wild and Wendell. Oh, those uh, guys should do a sketch show together. They they really they really should. Chris. What a great Potential. idea. Mm, fantastic. Um, so yes, they play Wendell and Wilde, who are sort of downtrodden demons in hell, toiling away on their father's head, regrowing his hair. He is um, he's voiced by Ving Rhames. Um, until one day, uh, a little girl called Cat, who's who's voiced by Lyric Ross, uh, basically ends up summoning them to our world. She is uh, an she was orphaned in an accident, and since then she has blamed herself, hated the world, lashed out at anyone who comes close to her. So you know there are lessons to be learned here about um, giving yourself another chance, giving yourself a bit of grace, um, and and also maybe not summoning demons to Earth. I mean, call me crazy, but it doesn't seem like a super good idea, as you'd expect from a Henry Selick film. These are amazingly uh, animated beautifully created uh, characters in a very uh, memorable world I mean in terms of you know it's a, a lot more colorful and crazy looking than something like uh, you know a nightmare before Christmas uh, the, the sort of the hell in this case is very very bright poppy wild colors with sort of cut out people like like paper cut out people um, being forced to go on roller coasters. That's that's the hell in this place. Um, but Kat will have some help um, because the, the orphanage where she's been taken in or the school where she's studying, uh, one of the teachers is Sister Helly, who's voiced by Angela Bassett. And she is a kick-ass demon-fighting nun. So... She's got that going for her as well. You know, there, there's some there's some help up there. It's really fun. I don't think it's the best work from either Henry Selleck or Jordan Peele, but, you know, that's an extremely high bar indeed. So it's no uh, disrespect to say that this doesn't quite meet it. So is this a nightmare before Christmas? 
it's not quite up there like with A Nightmare Before Christmas. And actually, at times, weirdly, it has shades of Candyman. There's a sort of, you know, with the, with the cutout characters and things like that. There are little tiny, tiny shades of, of what they did with the backstory in Candyman. But, and it's definitely not for younger children. I think, I think it's probably an older audience even than Nightmare, actually. So it's probably tweens rather than under 10s, for me anyway. But then again, as discussed, I am a wuss. You are a wuss. Uh, absolutely. Okay, then. Wendell and Wild, we gave us four stars. It's a very four-star week. Very uh, four-star week, wow. We also get four stars to All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a German-language uh, remake of that uh, classic story. Uh, we'll be reviewing that on next week's show, folks. Next week's show. But right now, it's on Netflix. Four stars for that one. And now that the review section of the show is done and dusted, it is time for our second and final guest this week. You've already heard about how much we love Barbarian. For me, it's one of the horror films of the year, maybe even one of the films of the year. And it's a fantastic showcase for its writer-director, Zach Kreger, but also its star, Georgina Campbell, who is a British actress who you will have seen before in the likes of Krypton, that short-lived Superman-ish show, Black Mirror, and the excellent British comedy, All My Friends Hate Me. But Barbarian is set to make her a huge star, I would say. She is fantastic in this as Tess, uh, who is a, I'm trying not to give too much away here, who is a woman. And that's pretty much all I can say about Barbarian. No, she is a woman who, as you heard in Helen's review, goes to a, a house she has rented in Detroit. And she meets someone who has also rented the house at the same time. Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård. And they have a chat and they just mistrust at first. Then they get to know each other a little bit better. And then other things begin to happen. Weird Freaky, freaky dicky things that I won't give away. Now, because we were trying to preserve the mystery of Barbarian in this interview with Georgina Campbell, we don't really get into the plot of the film at all. So we talk around it, we talk about the the reaction to the film's success in the States, what it means for her, her love of horror, what it's like getting a script like this with so many twists and turns, all that sort of stuff. If you're looking for Spoiler stuff, wait for the spoiler special interview with Zach Kreger. Now, we will say that even though we were tiptoeing around spoilers, Georgina does mention a couple of things that happened in the movie obliquely, but she also confirms that Justin Long is in it, which is something that we didn't mention in our review. So there we go. Here it is. My interview with Georgina Campbell, who was an absolute delight. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of Barbarian, Georgina Campbell. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. We have a bit of a problem in that we can't really talk about Barbarian without getting into spoiler territory. Uh, we have 20 minutes. So, yeah. yeah. I know, it's kind of funny because it's it came out in the US a while ago. So yeah. I'm kind of amazed that um, spoilers have like, you know, people are managing to see it in the UK and still haven't heard spoilers yet. So yeah. I don't want to ruin it for them now if they've got this far without hearing anything. If you've come this far precisely and if you, if you know, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe we should go full spoiler and just tell people to leave. No, no, no. Let's, let's be pure. Let's be pure and uh, spoiler at first. But it's, it's true. I, cause I, I knew that this, I, you know, I've been reading on Twitter that this movie was amazing and I basically just shut off. Anytime I saw a tweet with Barbarian in the title, I, I would just go, no, I'm done. I do not want to know anything about it. Uh, and that's trying to preserve the mystery for as long as we possibly can. So let's talk about the experience, first of all, before we talk about the film itself. What's it been like for you? Because the film has been uh, a big hit. What's the reaction been like for you being on the, the inside? Yeah, it's been, it's uh, it's kind of overwhelming. It's bizarre. Um, 
I, I, I don't even know where to start. We, um, I think when we, when I, when we made the film, I was, I was sure that I really liked it and I thought it was going to be really good. Uh, <laughs> and then as we got closer to its release, good things just kept happening and it kept, you know, it was, it was doing really well in testing. And then it, you know, turned out we didn't, we didn't know when we made it, what was going to happen to it. Like you never know these days, lots of things end up on streamers, which is, you know, still great. There's great movies that go straight to streaming services. Mm. Um, But we were all like so excited when we heard that it was going to be on in cinemas. Um, And since, yeah, since it's release, it's just kind of like slowly grown and, People, I mean, in America, there's been such a great response and um, it's, it's, it's very exciting and very strange. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I love the film, so I'm glad other people love it as well. So that experience that you've had, watching it with audiences, I haven't had that yet. I, I can't wait to go back and see it again with, a, with an audience shrieking and shitting themselves all in the right places. Hopefully yeah. that, that would be amazing. No, no, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen. Right, I just, right, right. No, I just want the shrieking. That's all I want. But what's that been like for you going in, knowing, okay, I'm going to watch. Do you watch the audience when certain moments are about to happen? Yeah, I saw it a few times in screenings to begin with. Like we went to a few screenings and did Q&As and stuff. And um, the first one that we went to had like a really, you know, the audience were just so loud and they were really into it and it was really exciting. And I could see Zach, the director, was kind of sat in front of me and we were both just like looking around like, oh my God, what are they saying? What do they think? And then I went to see it. Um, when it came out, I went with some friends and I went with my boyfriend and it was really quiet, to be fair. When we went to see it, it was the first week it had been released. So it was still, you know, it, the, the popularity of it kind of grew. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a huge audience, um, but there was still like people were making noises. <laughs> and I was really happy because I just wanted to hear like which parts people were kind of laughing at or were like screaming at or, um, you know, gasping or whatever. Um, so it's just been really cool. I mean, I, I, I then I haven't seen it in a while now. I saw it so many times at the beginning when we were doing screenings, but like every, I went to the cinema the other day and like it was playing. So like, as we were leaving, I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go and have a look. (laughs) So I just like popped my head in the door and was like, Oh, this is the part they're at. And there were some like noises going on and I was like, okay, cool. Like playing well, everything's good. Um, So yeah, it's been cool. And then an usher goes, excuse me, miss, do you have a ticket? Yeah. (laughs) I'm her. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be amazing. Uh, So I have to say when you do Q and A's in the States after the film, how many people go, what's up with the accent? What are you doing? What, what, that's wizardry. What's, what's going on? Did you get that reaction? Yeah, I think some people have been surprised. I don't know though, because I, I don't know. I, you know, when, whenever we as British people watch Americans do British accents, we're like, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. But when I watch stuff with Americans, they're like, oh, is it, is it that bad? Like, it sounds okay. So I feel like I, you know, I, they may be having the same reaction. There might be Americans over there that are watching it being like, what earth is this accent? But to like my ear, I'm like, that sounds so American. <laughs> Sounds so good. So um, I don't know. I think some people have been surprised, but I don't know. Maybe they all knew all along anyway because they thought the accent was weird. 
All right, so we, we can talk about the accent, I think, without without spoiling things. You have an American accent in this movie. Uh, yeah. Nobody dies as a result of the American accent, which which is good. Uh, so can you talk me through that process? I mean, yeah, first of all, how did the film come about? And was Tess always written as, a, as an American? Could you have played this as a Brit? Uh, no, she was definitely an American. I think she, she needed to be um, an American. I think it probably would have maybe taken people out of it a little bit if I'd come in with like my prim and proper British accent <laughs> <laughs> in Detroit. I don't know. If what? Like, yeah. no, she's, she's from out of town, right? So she could have been from anywhere. That's true. No, yeah, I, it was, I got sent the script. Um, it was American. She was American. And I've played, I've done a few uh, jobs where I've played American um, people before. So I have done a generic and general kind of American accent before on things. And then I really loved the script and yeah, and I, I did it. And my boyfriend's American. So he was very helpful um, with, you know, the American accent. And also Zach was, the director was just, he was really on top of me, which to begin with is really annoying as an actor, I think, because you're like, oh my God, like, I know what I'm doing. But then, you know, he saved my ass at so many points. And then I did another job, which hasn't come out yet, where I had to do an American accent and nobody said anything about my American accent the whole way through. And now I'm just waiting for it to come out because I think it's going to be <laughs> shocking. Because I'm like, there's no way that I did this whole film and the American accent sounded perfect the whole time. So I'm glad that Zach kind of, he really rode me and like made sure that my American accent was in check. All right. So in the next film, are you, are you talking like that all the time? Exactly. Probably. <laughs> well, no, well, no, if a film comes out next year and you're like talking like that, then that's the one. That's the one Georgina was talking about. But that's, let's talk about Zach because... He's such a fascinating guy. I spoke to him the other night and we did talk spoilers on that one. So we, we could talk about the film, but he is a fascinating guy. Obviously, he's got this comedic background. And then out of the blue comes this really dark and twisted horror movie. You know, what was it like working with him? Because the sense I got of, of was, a, was a very, very normal guy. Uh, you need to get to know him more. Okay. <laughs> he is not that normal. There's no, something in the basement. He's lovely. He's lovely. But um, I definitely like once I'd known him for a few weeks, I was like, okay, I understand where this script came from. Like his brain is, he's got a very interesting uh, mind and definitely has like a bit of a darkness to him. That's also funny. He's got a very funny, dark sense of humor. Um, he's just great. I just, I, I, when I read that, I didn't know him. I didn't know him um, as an actor. I didn't know his comedy stuff, but my boyfriend did actually, he was the one who told me um, about whitest kids, you know, and I watched some of it hilarious. Yeah. He just wrote a really great script. Like his script was just fantastic. And I, you know, spoke to him and he was very intelligent and he knew exactly what he wanted to do. And that kind of went straight through into when we were creating it. Like he was a, Pretty, pretty much, as, you know, this was his first film that he wrote and directed, um, which can be really hard. And I've, I've worked on a lot of jobs now with first time directors and sometimes first time um, directors slash writers. And it can be a little bit messy sometimes because everyone's trying to figure out they're trying to figure it out. But he came in and just was like so prepared. I felt like he'd been doing it forever. He knew exactly what he was doing and he was on top of everything. Um, I really loved working with him. I would, yeah, I would work with him again in like a heartbeat if it came up. He told me that he basically formatted this script out, that it was, he refined it obviously, but there were, there were, it was basically a fever dream that led to, to this. And, um, 
I think we can probably talk about the first thirty minutes of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, but but then it takes a it takes an unexpected turn, shall we say? Mm-hmm. When you were reading the script for the first time, how much did you know about it, and did you know about the unexpected turns that happen? And and when you read them, what was that like for you? I didn't know anything about it at all. I actually already had had a job. Um, <laughs> I had a job. I was very close to signing um, everything for the job. It was all kind of squirreled away. And this script came in um, through my American agent kind of sneakily. He kind of sneaked it in and said, this is really good. Like, I think you should just read this. And I was sort of like, well, oh, I have a job. Like, I don't really like need this. But sure, I'll, I'll give it a read. He said it was a horror and I really like horror films. So I was like, great. Um, so I was just so surprised <laughs> when I started reading it because to be honest, I've seen a lot of horror scripts that have like come my way and a lot of them have not been very good. It's a really, really hard genre to write and to write well. And I was just blown away. And especially by what you're talking about, which is, you know, these massive shifts in you know, what's going on. The, the whole of the first act is following two characters and then suddenly we're somewhere completely different. We're with a completely different character. Everything changes. Um, and when I got to that part in the script, I was like, oh yeah, I want to do this. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, what is happening? Um, and then by the end of it, I just was so taken by also the tone of it because it took me a while to get the tone of it. But once you get the tone of it, especially reading it, it took a while to be like, what's going on here? And then once the humor really started showing, um, I just really loved it. And it's just exactly the sort of thing that I love watching. Um, and then I spoke to Zach and he, he's just really cool. So I was, yeah, I was in. Reading this for the first time, not knowing anything about it. And the first 30 pages, I think we can say is basically a two-hander between yourself and Bill Skarsgård. Yeah. As, as Keith. And there's a different kind of tension there because a lot of the film is about toxic masculinity and how and how women can navigate the world basically and and assess the intentions of of male strangers and 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 men and, and towards them so we're reading that and you're thinking it's one thing where's the, is the tension on the page for you did you feel the tension in that relationship where Tess isn't quite sure what Keith's doing and he's almost overcorrecting in a way to make her feel at ease, which is then making her feel more uneasy. Is that something that comes across on the page for you? Yeah, it came across. It was really, really, really well written. So everything, I mean, even I think this, the, the draft I read was pretty much the ending draft and everything that we uh, we filmed was from the script. Nothing really changed as we were going along. Um, and as I was reading it, I was like taken by, it was really well written. And I think I was going down the route um, that obviously Zach wants you to go down, which I was, you know, I, I was interested in it. I'll be honest at the beginning. I was like, okay, like this is written well, this is interesting. But as you feel as an audience as well, you're like, I kind of know where this is going and like, eh, okay. But then obviously what he does is he, he lulls you into that false sense of security and then he completely subverts it and it turns into something completely different. Um, and I, that's where he got me was like, as soon as that change came and it was like, oh, you think that's what's going on? No, no, no this is what's going on. I was like, oh, this is smart. <laughs> this is very smart and very good. Um, yeah. So, so you've read a lot of horror scripts. What what sets a good one and a bad one apart? And can scares come across on the page? 
Um, I think it's hard for scares to come across. In the, I don't know, but maybe that's just me as a reader because I know that Justin said that when he read the script, he was terrified. He had to stop reading halfway through and start again. <laughs> I was, I did not feel that way. <laughs> like I, I got it. I got that there were scary parts in it, but I didn't. It didn't like hit me in a visceral way. I just thought it was cool and was like, oh, this works. This, you know. <laughs> so for example, does, does, the sack, does sack go boo in all in all caps when there's a scary yeah, moment exactly. or does he say now there's a jump scare uh, be, yeah. be afraid um, but I think that, like lots of horror films that I have read they it's just very easy to be formulaic and for you to know what's coming and for it to not really be that scary or just you know there's just so many horror films now that it's like it's just very easy for you to read a horror film and go oh I've seen this or like I, I literally watched this film last week this is the same film just done again um I just think it's a really hard genre to to write well and also the fact that I I mean I really like horror films as well where you have that you know that little blend of humor that 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 little um kind of wink that you get that um adds to the genre and I, I think that lots of you know horrors that I've read um they don't, they don't have any of that it's all you know horror and dark and sometimes that's great and works really well but again it has to be really well written so I just think it's hard I think it's hard to write I think it's as hard to write really as comedy like comedy is really hard to write horror is really hard to write well so we're a few days away from Halloween Barbarians coming out just in just in the nick of time for Halloween over here. Uh, you're a horror fan. Do you have a horror filled Halloween planned? <laughs> I'm trying to think about, I haven't like done anything for Halloween in so many years. So I'm always working. I think I am going to a Halloween party. Okay. But it's immediately, I, I'm flying back to the UK on, I mean, to LA on Saturday. So I think it's like the night that I fly in. So I'm going to be exhausted. So I, I, I don't think I'm going to dress up. I'll probably just put some like blood on my face somewhere. Like, oh, come on. Boring, basic. Oh, you could do better than that. It's the States. They go nuts for Halloween. I don't know. What about you? Are you into Halloween? Do you dress up? Uh, we're, we're, we're into Halloween. I've never dressed up for Halloween. Never, 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 ever dressed up for Halloween. I, I go as, as you know, slightly down in his luck journalist every year. That's, that's what I go as. But, uh, right. but this year, uh, we, we, well, we've, regular listeners will know, we've just adopted a little girl and she's nuts for Halloween. So we're going to see if we can get her a costume, but, but, but not a scary costume, something from kids TV. Yeah, something cute. Yeah, something cute. And then maybe just squirt some blood on it just to make it look, look yeah. a bit scary. Yeah. Perfect. I'm afraid your favourite kids' TV character has just been murdered horribly. And that's that's what you're going as. Uh, but but we will be watching some some scary films probably. So do you have, uh, are you going to line anything up? If you had a Halloween double bill, what would you go for? I mean, I love Get Out. Get Out's always a good one to go for. And um, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. That's yeah. a hell of a double bill. Yeah. You're going to go in that order, get out, then going into Texas Chainsaw, or are you going to go Texas yeah, Chainsaw? Yeah, with Texas Chainsaw. Because Get Out can kind of like build up, get you in the mood, and then Texas Chainsaw is kind of like full gross out. And then throw a barbarian in without telling anyone what it's about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now I'm going to show you my film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but trust me, it's a belter. And it is a belter, and it must have... You know, that's that's finished where we where we began and talk about the the impact and the fact that it's been such a huge success in the States. What has this meant for you personally from from a, a career point of view, I guess? You know, I don't know. I don't know yet. It's I think it's good. Um these things like 
you just never want to drink the Kool-Aid. You never want to get too like, this is it. But um, I think people have been like, this is amazing. Like this is putting you on the map. This is, which is exciting. And I'll see where that takes me. I've got like a couple of jobs coming up next year, which I'm excited for. And um, it came at the right time. So I've just moved to LA. So it was kind of perfect that this film's come out and is kind of doing well over there. So hopefully a few of the casting directors know who I am. <laughs> I suspect they know who you are. I, <laughs> somehow I have an inkling that they know who you are. Uh, Georgina, it's been an absolute pleasure, but I'm going to let you go. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a blast. Maybe next time we chat, we can actually talk about Barbarian. Yes, I would love that. Georgina Campbell, absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Lita. Thanks so much. And that was it from Georgina Campbell. And if you want to hear questions about the actual content of Barbarian, then as I said, a spoiler special for that movie is on its way. Hoping to hit Halloween, but more likely some point next week. And that's going to be feature a, an interview with the director, Zach Kreger. And that is it, indeed, for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by... It's going to get weird in here. We're going to be joined by Daniel Radcliffe for the second time this year, talking about his role as Weird Al Yankovic in the Weird Al Yankovic biopic, Weird. Plus, we'll be joined by Lila Neugebauer, director of the new Apple TV film, Causeway, and her star, someone called... Jennifer Lawrence, does anyone hey? ring a bell with anybody? No, it'll never catch on. Jennifer Lawrence, it'll never catch on. Just like that sketch show um, with Jordan Peele and Keegan Michael Key. They could call it Peele and Key. What a great idea, just idea Chris. Wow. Throw it out there. Uh, just a little idea that. for you. I mm. should pitch that. In fact, mm. I have. I just have right now. Uh, that's who we'll be joined by next week. So, uh, very, very excited about that. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. It's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from Ella Kemp and possibly her builders. Goodbye. Can we hear them? Uh, I'm sure. Should, I'm sure. If you listen very closely, there's, there's, a, there's a secret message relating to next week's podcast. If you run this through some different software, you can hear what my builders are trying to communicate. If you play this podcast backwards, it just makes no sense, but it makes more sense than the actual podcast, which is which is weird. Uh, and of course, it's goodbye for me. Happy Halloween, everybody. This is the last podcast before this year's Halloween. Very, very excited about that. I, of course, am going to dress up as the most terrifying thing I know, James Dyer. Or maybe the third act of Barbarian. One of the two. We shall see. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Oh, no. Do you hear that? No, I don't hear anything. Okay, then. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.